This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we begin this hour with the number of confirmed coronavirus cases in the United States now nearing 1 million, with the number of reported cases worldwide surpassing 3 million. The death toll in the U.S. right now is more than 55,000. That marks a huge acceleration in the number of lives lost since this time one month ago when the death toll was 1,495. Today we are learning the White House is weighing whether to issue new guidance on how to safely operate businesses, sources tell CNN, and the president is set to speak in the next hour as businesses in several states are already opening. You can now sit down at a restaurant in Georgia or in Alaska. Residents in Tennessee and Arkansas will be able to do the same later this week. Salons and barbershops are also open in Oklahoma and Colorado. One barbershop owner in Georgia telling CNN he had about 30 clients visit on Friday, exclaiming, quote, if I don't cut, I don't eat. The economic pain out there is indeed very real. And yet, if many Americans rush to reclaim their old lives too soon, there remains a very real fear of deaths and illnesses and even longer that the U.S. has to stay at home. As the head of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, Dr. Burks, told me yesterday. Are you concerned about a potential surge in new cases and deaths after these states take these actions? You know, I'm always concerned, and that's why we put out key key gating criteria. It's unclear that any of the states and locations we've just mentioned have met those key gating criteria Dr. Burks talked about, namely 14 straight days of declining cases and the ability of the state to test and contact trace the whereabouts of anyone infected. And yet we see these scenes not only from those states, but from states where stay-at-home orders are still in place, Californians at packed beaches amid a heat wave, with similar scenes at crowded parks in New York City. As CNN's Kyung La reports for us now, health experts across the country are warning even states with large declines in cases and deaths should see spikes as they reopen. In New York, home to the nation's largest COVID hotspot, the state's governor signaled a pivot is coming as numbers flatten to a high plateau. May 15th is when the pause regulations uh, expire statewide. I will extend them in many parts of the state. Some regions, you could make the case that we should unpause on May 15th. But you have to be smart about it. Being smart, says Governor Cuomo, means showing a 14-day decline in cases. That's not exactly being followed in other states. Open for some seating in Georgia, with plastic grocery bags over chairs, other seats roped off. The new dining normal rolled in. Restaurants and movie theaters with restrictions are operating again in Georgia, though it's unclear if any diners are ready. From Georgia to Montana to Alaska, the national push to reopen expands this week. At least 13 states will reopen some of their major businesses. With as many sanitation preparations as possible in Colorado, this barbershop is moving forward, desperate to get business back. We're going to be cautious. We need money. Each state's governor is calling the shots, leading to an uneven and dangerous national response to the pandemic, warns this Georgia coroner. I think it's like playing Russian roulette. Every time you walk out the house or go to a place without a mask and, and practice social distancing, 
you play in Russian with that. Some state level Republicans now tell CNN they're wary of reopening too quickly after President Trump publicly rebuked Georgia's governor. I disagree strongly with his decision. Florida's governor likely taking note after being criticized for taking too long to shut things down. This morning signaled more caution. This is going to be slow and steady wins the race. It's going to be very methodical, very data driven. The most important metric, testing and lots of it, is still not where it needs to be, warns a White House coronavirus response coordinator. We have to have a breakthrough. This RNA testing will carry us certainly through the spring and summer, but we need to have a huge technology breakthrough. Dr. Burks adds social distancing will be the rule through the summer. The White House economic advisor predicted testing would catch up. We'll be able to ramp up rapidly in the testing just as we did in ventilators. And just the last few minutes, Texas announced that their state would join the others in beginning to reopen. Texas's governor said that when the statewide executive order requiring businesses to shut down, when that expires on April 30th, on Friday, May 1st, those businesses will allow, they will be allowed to come back online, Jake. So starting Friday at 25 percent occupancy, Texans will be able to go back to malls, movie theaters and dine in restaurants. Jake. Kung La, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Join me now, CNN Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, uh, the Washington Post and Financial Times both have done uh, analyses that find the death toll in the U.S. and around the world is likely much higher than, than the official numbers. And this all comes as Dr. Burks is saying we need a big breakthrough in testing uh, and more uh, to get out of this. In other words, a vaccine or treatment. Um, are you confident that there will be such a breakthrough? Uh, well, I, I think that there, there's going to be new testing that, that's going to come around. I think the, the question is going to be, as has been with these previous tests, is how much can we rely on the accuracy of these tests? Uh, the, the Washington Post, by the way, the, the, the number of deaths that they're talking about that was actually higher in, in, in a large part is because of people who may have died during this time period, uh, a number that's higher than a similar time period from years past because they oftentimes did not seek medical treatment in the midst of this pandemic. Uh, people who may not have been counted, who, who actually had COVID-related disease. So there's all these different tragic ripple effects of this that they're starting to get a better handle on. But as far as the testing, uh, Jake, goes, let me, let me just show you the three tests that we're now talking about uh, mostly. The, the test for the actual virus itself, and that's called the PCR test. This is, a, there you go, PCR test, and that means polymerase chain reaction. Basically, Jake, you're finding a little piece of, of genetic material. You got to amplify it to actually uh, see if you can detect it or not. That's that's a hard test. That's the one that relies on these reagents and all these various things. So even if you have the labs, if you don't have those other supplies, those tests are hard to do. Serology is the antibody test, tells you if you had been infected. What Dr. Burks was talking about is this bottom one called the antigen test. That's just looking for a protein on the virus. You don't need the same reagents. This is like the rapid stress, strep test, uh, Jake. I don't know if your kids have ever had that done throat swab, you can get a result back pretty quickly. That's the sort of test that you'd like to have. Right. But the thing is, Jake, it's got to work well. Right now, some of these, these rapid antigen tests have pretty high false negative rates. So you got to have a rapid test, but you, you know, the breakthrough is making sure that it works well. Uh, you saw the images, uh, Sanjay, uh, people in, on packing beaches in California, 
uh, packing parks in, in New York. Um, Dr. Burks also says some form of social distancing should last for months, although it's an open question that people are even doing it in states where they have an order to. How do we fully reopen economies and, and still have social distancing in place, or is it impossible to fully reopen an economy with social distancing? I think it's impossible to fully reopen the economy with social distancing. And that's, again, Jake, I, I take no joy in saying that. You and I have had this conversation now for months about this. The social distancing is important. There is a contagious virus that is still out there. And, you know, the good news is that we've seen the impact of, of people largely staying at home. I mean, these are some, you know, very difficult times. But, Jake, even when you look at those restaurants and, you know, you, you, I guess I appreciate the efforts that are going that people are going through. And I recognize the hardship economically. But, you know, somebody coughs or sneezes and then those, those, those respiratory droplets are on a surface, on a door handle. Someone touches that. They touch a chair, whatever. It's just very hard, aside from just keeping people six feet apart, which is a bit arbitrary, as we know, but important. But in those types of places, it's just very hard to accomplish the goal that we're trying to accomplish here, which is to basically stop the spread of the virus everything becomes a potential source of contamination. That, that's the issue. So the essential businesses, I, I understand, and you know, it's a risk-reward proposition like most things are in life. But for other things, I mean, you, you're taking a gamble you know, right now. It's not forever, but mm -hmm. right now you're taking a gamble. What needs to happen as well, Jake, is going back to this testing. Can I walk into a place confident that I'm not harboring the virus in my body? Can I be confident based on testing that the people I'm about to interact with, Jake, if I was gonna have lunch with you, that you are not harboring the virus? We have to get to that point. I mean, it's, it's a mindset shift, at least for a while. I, you know, I've given you the metaphor before of diabetics who check their blood sugar often. Start thinking about it like that, and I think you'll get a better sense of the kind of testing that needs to take place in this country. And, and uh, I spoke with the Democratic governor of Colorado uh, yesterday on State of the Union about his decision uh, to reopen parts of the economy in a measured way, uh, much as they're trying to do in other places, Tennessee, Georgia, et cetera. Um, but there is a very real fear uh, that there will be a spike in cases or, God forbid, deaths uh, as restrictions are eased. How concerned are you? I'm, I'm nervous, Jake. I mean, you know, I, I, I think for, for a lot of people, the, the question ultimately is going to be like, what, what is, the, what is the, um, the gamble? Like, what's it worth to you in terms of people likely getting infected, possibly needing hospitalization and possibly dying? I mean, I think at any point that we start to do this, you are going to see infections occur that otherwise would not have and possibly hospitalizations and deaths. That's always going to be that gamble. But now it seems like a bigger gamble. I mean, preventable deaths are, are you know, the worst thing. I mean, you know, to, to say, look, these are deaths that could have otherwise been prevented, uh, that, that's never going to be a, a, a thing that people are going to be comfortable with, obviously. I think the other part of this, Jake, is that, again, just the time course. So you and I are going to be talking about this for the next, uh, you know, several weeks. Right now, as we open, if people get, become exposed, the time period before they start to develop symptoms and possibly need hospitalization when they you know, get counted would be three weeks or so. So for three weeks, people may say, hey, we made the right decision. Look, things are fine here, and you know, I get that. But you gotta know the science. You got to understand how this virus behaves in the environment and how it behaves in people's bodies. So we really, we gotta, we gotta keep our mm -hmm. heads up on this and, and, and just keep watching things very closely. 
The former head of the CDC, uh, Tom Frieden, said that if they had acted quicker in New York City and New York State, they could have saved tens of thousands of, of lives, uh, potentially. Uh, Sanjay, thank you so much. Be sure to listen to Dr. Gupta's daily podcast, Coronavirus Fact versus Fiction, wherever you listen to your podcast. It's a must listen. Coming up, it's on. No, it's off. Okay, it's back on. The White House is wild back and forth about whether the president will address the nation this evening and how those briefings could soon change. Plus, a major supplier now issuing a warning about trouble getting food to your table as the CDC jumps in to try to help keep the food supplies safe. We'll explain. That's coming up. Stay with us. The Trump administration is trying to rewrite the narrative today, canceling the planned coronavirus task force briefing and instead allowing cameras to watch the president meeting with various CEOs before what is now called a Rose Garden news conference. It's part of a larger strategy to try and shift the focus to rebuilding the economy. This comes, of course, after that disastrous briefing last Thursday where the president mused aloud about the possibilities of injecting disinfectant into the human body as a possible coronavirus treatment, which prompted aides and allies to further try to convince the president to stop leading the daily coronavirus briefings. And as CNN's Caitlin Collins reports for us now, the president made it clear through an angry Twitter tirade that he is not happy about any of the backlash he's facing. As the president vents over media coverage, the White House scheduled, canceled, and rescheduled his first appearance in front of cameras since Friday. We're not tracking a briefing for today because there will be a press avail at 4 p.m. with the president and retail CEOs. The press secretary canceled the daily coronavirus task force briefing this morning, only to announce hours later that Trump would hold a news conference in the Rose Garden this evening. President Trump hasn't taken questions since Thursday when he suggested injecting household disinfectants could help treat coronavirus. It'll be interesting to check that so that you're going to have to use medical doctors with. But it sounds it sounds interesting to me. The president's new communications team is looking to avoid a redo of that fallout and is hoping to scale back press briefings that go off script as one of his top doctors spent the weekend defending his comments. It bothers me that this is still in the news cycle because I think we're missing the bigger pieces of what we need to be doing as an American people to continue to protect one another. The White House is also expected to scale back the task force meetings. The group did not meet Sunday or today, despite meeting nearly every day for the last two months. Trump spent the weekend behind closed doors, lashing out as he vented about media coverage that he says has been unfair. Within 48 hours, the president said briefings weren't worth the effort because reporters only asked hostile questions. He deleted a tweet calling for journalists to return their noble prizes, criticized Fox News and the Wall Street Journal editorial board, said Washington Post employees were slime balls and denied reports that he's considering firing the Health and Human Services Secretary, Alex Azar. At one point, he also retweeted a conspiracy that the death toll numbers from coronavirus are being inflated to hurt him politically. Without his usual outlets like golf or lunches with friends, sources say the president is internalizing negative news coverage now more than ever and is frustrated by internal polls that show he's down among voters. 
Now, Jake, we should note that in the Rose Garden today, we are expecting the president to talk about testing. He's supposed to release two documents, one laying out what the administration has done so far to ramp up testing and another being really a blueprint for what they see going forward. Now, the White House held a briefing on this earlier to give reporters a preview of what the what these documents look like. They did not invite CNN, but we obtained the documents anyway. And really what it lays out is how they envision the federal government, state government and local governments acting in the weeks to come as these states do start to reopen in addition to the private sector. And we should note that under the federal government section of this blueprint, it says that it should act as a supplier of last resort, which of course has been a big point of contention between the governors and the administration so far. All right, let's hope they get that testing up to speed. Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. Joining me now, CNN's chief political correspondent, Dana Bash. And Dana, you have some brand new reporting about conversations that the Trump administration officials are having with governors as they try to ramp up testing. Tell us about that. That's right, Jake. Uh, the vice president and other top officials had a call with all governors today. And as part of that call, they presented the documents that Caitlin was just talking about. But more broadly, this was a follow up to a series of phone calls. This is according to one of the governors on the call who I spoke with Friday, Saturday and Sunday, where administration officials were data collecting from the governors, asking exactly what they believe that they need when it comes to testing. So the call today was the vice president and others telling the governors, we hear you, we're calling the information, we're going through it, and we're going to get back to you in the next couple of days and let you know exactly what we think we can give you. And this, according to the governor I spoke to, is specifically about, uh, you know, about reagents and about swabs, the materials that these governors are so desperately in need of in order to get the testing up and running. I should just add that the governor I spoke to said, uh, this is so key, having the visibility and what is coming uh, is really critical to developing a testing plan. We can have any plan we want, but if we don't know what's arriving, we don't know how many sites to operate and so forth. So there is a lot of hope that this is actually going to, to work when it comes to, again, asking the governors what they want and then delivering what they say they need. Let's hope so. Sources tell CNN, um, in addition, that some of the president's allies were worried uh, that his comments uh, in general at these long press briefings were hurting his chance for reelection. Uh, now, of course, the Lysol gate happened. Uh, now the White House says mm -hmm. the briefings, quote, might have a new look to them, a new focus to them, um, unquote. Uh, this isn't a president no to stay on message. What do you expect from the president in the Rose Garden in just a few minutes? I mean, it's really going to be the first test since uh, that he and his aides have telegraphed uh, that there will be a change in how he presents his information and how he uh, spars or doesn't spar with reporters. And uh, I, I have heard, as I'm sure you have, Jake, from many Republican sources, allies of the president, uh, they're, a lot of, they're breathing a sigh of relief that there haven't been a series of unwieldy press conferences over the past few days. They say that it's pretty clear that the president, uh, that he, one source said to me, he, like a child, touched the so stove. He was burned because he was clearly embarrassed by all the fallout, by his musings about Lysol. Uh, the question is, as you are clearly alluding to, how long is that going to last? And again, today's Rose Garden event will be one of the tests. It won't be a traditional press conference, but he will be before reporters and we'll see if he can uh, stay on message, as you said. We've gotten, I wouldn't say used to, but we have uh, certainly noticed a pattern that the president uh, tweets bizarre 
things, says bizarre things. <laughs> and then, of course, there are all these bizarre retweets. This weekend was something else. Uh, a retweet suggesting yeah. that the president's rivals are inflating the death rates to hurt his reelecting chances. And a, a retweet of a deep fake, which we have been warning about now for years, people using individuals' images and technology to make it look as though public figures are saying and doing things they aren't. They aren't. We expected mm-hmm. this to happen maybe by Russia or China. This is President Trump putting it forward, a, a, a deep fake of Joe Biden. It's just indecent and obscene. I, I, I'm stunned to see it. Stunned to see it when it is a president, but maybe not surprising that it is this president because he has retweeted so many things uh, that he should not have done, including something uh, a couple of weeks ago that said that he should fire uh, Anthony Fauci, which he clearly either realized or didn't realize. Um, This is the danger of the president having his own megaphone with Twitter, especially when he is agitated. All right, Dana Bash, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Months of this nightmare with more than 200,000 lives lost around the world, and there's still so much we do not know about the novel coronavirus. We'll dig into that with a former CDC disease detective. That's next. We've been consumed by this deadly virus for months, but in some respects, coronavirus remains a mystery. Why do some patients show severe symptoms and others none? How does the virus kill people. Science magazine recently listed nearly every organ as being vulnerable to the disease. The brain, the eyes, nose, lungs, heart, liver, kidneys, even intestines. Or as award-winning science journalist Carl Zimmer bluntly put it recently, quote, is there any other virus out there that is this weird in terms of its range of symptoms? Joining us now, Dr. Seema Yasmin. Uh, Dr. Yasmin is a former CDC disease detective. Uh, thanks for joining us, as always. We appreciate it. So for weeks, we've heard the common coronavirus symptoms uh, are fever, dry cough, shortness of breath. But according to JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, as many as 70% of patients sick enough to be admitted into New York's hospital system did not have even a fever. Why are symptoms all over the map? Yeah, Jake, this new study in the Journal of the American Medical Association is the largest look yet at COVID-19 health outcomes in the U.S. They looked at 5,700 patients across 12 New York hospitals and found that 70% of patients who are sick enough to be hospitalized don't present with a fever. And yet the CDC and other organizations, they still list a fever as one of those top symptoms. And this is worrying because, you know, in the U.S., people have been turned away from testing centers simply because they did not have a fever. So studies like this one are starting to shift that. To answer your question about like, why are there so many differences? We're thinking that when you have a situation with such a wide range of disease severity and disease symptoms, this is pointing a lot more to the host immune system, more so than it is to the virus itself. And so it's looking here like people with chronic conditions are more vulnerable, older folks are more vulnerable because there's some underlying inflammation going on. The immune system is out of whack. It's really over responding. And that might be why so many systems, so many organ systems are involved and why we're seeing such a wide range of disease symptoms and severity across the board. So I read a great piece in New York Magazine. They did a deep dive on how much guidance has changed over the past few months from health experts. We went from thinking masks were unnecessary to saying that we should wear them at all times whenever we leave the house, uh, thinking there was no asymptomatic transmission to believing it accounts for as many as half of all cases, asymptomatic transmission, from thinking young people were invulnerable to 
not being invulnerable. Uh, is this normal for, for a new virus like this, to, for the health uh, recommendations and guidance to be all over the map? So unfortunately, when you are faced with a new pathogen, you're learning by the day. You're figuring out, you're collecting as much data as possible, trying to understand how is this thing spreading? What can be done to protect people? Unfortunately, what's happened is lots of missteps in the communication of that information. So sure, this is a very difficult task. That information is changing very frequently. But public health communication 101 is transparency and simplicity. And unfortunately, we haven't seen those. We've seen so much misinformation. We've seen such quick changes in the guidance that I think ultimately it leaves a lot of the public just confused and wondering, wait, you said not to wear masks. Now you're saying we should. Like, does this make any difference? And what should we believe? So that's been a real hindrance in this pandemic response. I also think it it, it feeds into a certain skepticism that we see among some when it comes to what health officials are saying, unfortunately. There was also a piece in The Times uh, about uh, silent hypoxia. Uh, the doctor found stable patients who didn't report any sensation of any breathing problems, registering, registering low oxygen levels and COVID pneumonia. I- explain the significance of that. So silent hypoxia, and I've talked to some New York City hospital uh, physicians who told me the same. Hypoxia is just a medical term for low oxygen. Silent hypoxia is this picture, which we're seeing in COVID-19 in some cases, where you look at the patient's oxygen saturation, so the amount of oxygen in their bloodstream, and it's really low, to the point that when you look at the reading, you think, is this person even conscious? But then you look at the patient with COVID-19, and they're sitting up in their bed, and they're talking on their cell phone, so the two things don't match together. And with clinical medicine, as high tech as it might seem, a lot of what you're doing when you're making a diagnosis is pattern recognition. So you get used to seeing the clinical picture of what pneumonia looks like. But COVID-19 is turning some of this on its head. I've talked to doctors who say we chest did a chest x-ray on someone or did a chest CT because they came in with an injury. And then we were like, wait, do they have a COVID-19 pneumonia, but they don't have any shortness of breath or any problems with breathing? So this is another instance, Jake, of the information changing quickly and us learning day by day that sometimes the symptoms appear differently in people and that what we normally look for in pneumonia might be a bit different with COVID-19. Yeah, it remains a real mystery. Dr. Seema Yasmin, thank you so much. Appreciate your time and expertise. Tens of thousands of National Guard members on the front lines of the pandemic. Next, I'll talk with a retired general who says the guardsmen and women are being put in harm's way without proper health insurance. Stay with us. The National Guard has been activated in all 50 states of the United States, nearly 45,000 personnel assisting in response to the novel coronavirus and handling some of the most grim and dangerous tasks, including transporting dead bodies to medical examiners and disinfecting nursing homes. And even as these guardsmen and guardswomen are on the front lines, they are not guaranteed the same medical insurance that full-time members of the military receive, even during this all-consuming pandemic. Joining me now to talk about this is retired General J. Roy Robinson. He's president of the U.S. National Guard Association. General Robinson, it's an honor to have you on. Thank you. Um, Let me ask you, 75% of U.S. service members involved in coronavirus response are National Guard. What if they get the virus while serving on the front lines? What happens? Mr. Tapper, thank you so much for having us. I really appreciate it. I think most of your audience will be surprised that every service member that's responded to this pandemic 
may not be covered by the TRICARE insurance program that most of the active service members have access to. It's basically, it's, it's uh, all dependent on the status that they're in. Right now, of that uh, almost 45,000 members that are currently serving, about, 70, about 82% are actually in a federal status. All of them may or may not be covered. Um, and there's also about 7,700 that are still in a state, state active duty status, which in most cases, they aren't covered by the health insurance associated with their service. Um, this is something that we've been talking about for a long time, and I'm grateful that you're raising this uh, in, in the public forum like this. Well, it's an injustice, and we should point out that at least 792 members of the National Guard have tested positive for coronavirus as of today. Uh, this is not ending anytime soon. We don't know if they got it while in the service of their Guard duties or not, but, but what do you need? What does the National Guard need to protect your men and women? It's very simple. I think that the, the truth is that every member um, that wears the cloth of this nation, it should be dependent on the status that they're in. They should, they should have health care coverage. It should be connected to their service. If that was the case, every member of the National Guard that was responding today would be covered by, health, by some form of health care. Um, right now, I think it's actually it's outrageous that we would send uh, some of these front line. Keep in mind, these are right on the front lines with doctors, nurses, and guardsmen who are standing there beside them, and some of which they're covered and some of which they're not. And uh, in this day and time, in the, the year 2020 in this country, I think it's outrageous that some of these members of the National Guard are responding to this global pandemic, and they may or may, may not be covered for, for any sickness that's associated with it. And if you look at the numbers, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty large percentage of the, the members that are currently mobilized, that uh, some of which have tested positive for the coronavirus. It is outrageous. You have every right to feel that way. When National Guardsmen and women, uh, when National Guard soldiers are, are sent abroad, uh, they're given transitional medical support for six months uh, should they face any issues upon their return. Uh, this virus can take weeks to present itself. We know that. Um, is there transitional support for the men and women of the Guard who may have come in contact with the virus while serving while going into the nursing homes to clean them, while carrying the dead bodies to the medical examiner. Is there that kind of transitional support? Jake, I wish there was. The, uh, the TAMP program uh, is for those soldiers who are deployed overseas whenever they come home and redeploy. They have six months of coverage under the TRICARE program. It's just not there. This is going to have to change. Number one, there's no reason in the world we should ever send a member of the National Guard out to do the things that they're doing in response to this pandemic without being covered. And the second part of that equation is there's no way that we should ever, at the end of, end of this mission, uh, return that soldier or airman to their home without having some means to quarantine them for 14 days and having some way for them to continue to have health coverage with their families out into the near future. I mean, nobody knows exactly how long some of the things that could happen associated with their exposure could it would take for it to show up. So we feel strongly that, you know, th this is something that needs to be addressed. It needs to be addressed now. We're in the middle of this pandemic. Um, we've got a, the, the authority today to cut these orders is only through May 31st. I got to be honest with you, I think that's an artificial 
kind of date that was put out there. I think it's a, a bureaucratic process that sometimes does not work in the best interest of the members of the National Guard who keep in mind, again, uh, they're right there with the nurses and the doctors and all of our Guard members on the front lines of, of uh, responding to this nation for this uh, global pandemic. Absolutely. General J. Roy Robinson, thank you so much for your service. We're going to stay on this story. So stay in touch because we're going to keep coming back to you until this wrong is righted. So thank you very much, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jay. Take care. Before you stock up at the grocery store, new details out today on what the CDC is doing to try to prevent a shortage of meat. That's next. Stay with us. The CDC is urging meat processing plants to change the way they do business in an effort to both protect the workers and the consumers and also to try to keep more of these plants open. New guidelines suggest that plant owners need to add physical barriers between workers, stagger in and out times and create overnight shifts. This comes as three major plants in South Dakota, Minnesota and Iowa have been forced closed. Together, they make up roughly 15% of the U.S. pork production. Let's bring in CNN's Diane Gallagher to talk more about this. Diane, the chair of Tyson Foods just warned that the food supply chain is breaking. Industry experts say that it's vulnerable, but not yet in crisis. What might all this mean uh, for when we go to the grocery store or order Instacart? Yeah, it's going to mean that there's less variety, Jake. It's going to mean that potentially the exact type of meat, the cut, the if you want pork or beef or chicken, if you want it to be chicken wings or a nice pork chop or something like that, you might not find exactly that. It also means that we're going to see less of a variety in some of these brands as their plants shut down. You mentioned those three pork production plants. That only represents about half of the pork production that's offline right now. Smaller plants, other plants are are closing briefly. We're looking at between 25 and 30 percent of pork production offline right now, about 10 percent of beef production offline. And with that's the case, the farmers don't have anywhere to send their livestock. So uh, we are seeing blips in the food chain, but it's not at a crisis level, at least when you're going to the grocery store right now. Well, yeah, let's only focus on the farmers there and that on that end uh, of the chain here. Mm -hmm. Uh, If these plants are closing, does that mean that farmers have fewer places to sell their livestock and then their businesses will be in trouble? It does. And right now, Jake, if there is a crisis involving with our food chain, it's with the farmers. They don't have anywhere to send their livestock right now. Uh, The Minnesota Pork Producers Association said at this point, there's about a million hogs in the United States that just have nowhere to go. In fact, uh, the the board there said that they're looking at potentially having to euthanize 200,000 hogs in just Minnesota alone Mm. if they can't find somewhere to take them. In Iowa, the governor and the U.S. senators sent a letter to the USDA asking for help from the federal government, help with getting these plants reopened and running again safely. And also, Jake, important here, mental health assistance. Farmers have uh, a very high suicide rate as an industry anyway, and they've said that this financially is becoming uh, even more difficult for them and they need help. All right, Diane Gallagher on top of an important story. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. One country now claiming it has eliminated coronavirus. Is that true? If so, how did they do it? That's next. In our world lead today, U.K. Prime Minister Boris Johnson is back to work after battling coronavirus, addressing the public today, saying the U.K. is showing signs of passing through the peak of this virus, but 
urging those in the UK to contain their impatience for the country to reopen. CNN's Bianca Nobila joins me now. Uh, Bianca, did the prime minister give any sense of when things might start to reopen in the UK? Jake, the Prime Minister's primary message was that he was back. 9 a.m. on a Monday, on the steps of Downing Street, he's back at the helm of government. He was less specific on exactly what the country's going to do next. An end to the lockdown is certainly not imminent, but there is an end in sight. The way that Boris Johnson, in his sort of typical evocative style, described it was as if the coronavirus was an invisible mugger and Britain had wrestled it to the floor. It was, he said, the moment of maximum risk, but also maximum opportunity to finally get the advantage over the virus. So whatever happens, it's going to be a phased return to normal life. Now, there's definitely a sense of relief in the country and definitely within the Prime Minister's party at having him back. His natural optimism and his keep calm, carry on attitude is good for them. But it's definitely going to be difficult for Boris now that he's back. And that's because the Prime Minister is facing really tough questions, Jake. Why was he not present at key meetings with his top advisers, the so-called COBRA meetings, in the lead-up, that critical period before the peak of the pandemic? And why is Britain on track to have one of the worst death tolls, not just in Europe, but in the world, Jake? All right, Bianca Nabila, thank you so much. Stay safe. New Zealand is now claiming that they have eliminated coronavirus. The director of general health in that country announcing that the government is easing restrictions from a level four to a level three. New Zealand's prime minister has been widely praised for her quick and aggressive response to COVID-19. New Zealand has reported fewer than 1,500 cases and only 19 deaths. CNN's Ivan Watson joins me now from Hong Kong. Uh, Ivan, so the government of New Zealand is saying they've essentially eliminated the virus, but they're still keeping lockdown restrictions? They are. I mean, they've had this strict lockdown for four weeks, and it's been relatively successful. As you pointed out, only 19 deaths for a country with a relatively small population, but still uh, something to uh, be proud about. But the prime minister is saying there is no time to celebrate right now. They are easing down the lockdown from alert level four, which was aimed at eliminating the disease from New Zealand's shores to alert level three, which is now aimed at restricting it. And that goes into effect as of midnight Monday night in New Zealand. What does that mean? Well, they're going to start opening up the economy, but they've announced that social life must stay shut down. They're anticipating about 400,000 Kiwis will go back to work. They're saying those who can should still work from home and people who have stores and shops, they have to engage in what they call uh, contact-free retail. So shops, shoppers can't even actually go into stores. They have to pick up at the curb. Children up to the age of 10 can go back to school. Older than that still have to study from home. And you can now have gatherings of up to 10 people, but for weddings and funerals only. They're mm-hmm. trying to still restrict a lot of domestic travel. International travel to and from New Zealand is still shut. Uh, and this is quite mm-hmm. popular so far. A, a recent poll shows 87 su- percent support from those surveyed for these tough measures that c- the government has taken One of the big challenges is going to be when can they open up to international travel? New Zealand depends heavily its economy on foreign tourism. Jake. 
Ivan Watson, thanks so much. We want to take a moment now uh, to reflect on the sad fact that thousands of Americans have died of coronavirus and are doing so every day. And now that number in the United States is more than 55,000. Your colleagues and in many circumstances, your family and friends. Today, we remember just one of those lost. When they took my sister off the bed, my nephew and I were able to be in the room with her. Her eyes opened just a little bit. A tear ran down her face, and it looked like she was trying to say goodbye or I love you or something. And my nephew and I both had to tell her it was okay. May her memory be a blessing. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.